Thank you, Debbie. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. We're not told how old Nehemiah was at the outset of this book, but we do know that his life was pretty well set. He had achieved a top-notch job with great benefits. He interacted with some of the most influential people in the world of that day. He lived and he worked and he ate in the lap of luxury. But things began to change for Nehemiah near the end of 445 B.C. That's when he learned about the state of affairs in Jerusalem, that the walls were broken down and that the gates were burned with fire. And that's when Nehemiah's heart was broken. That's when, even though Nehemiah was 800 miles away from the situation, God instilled in him a burden for Jerusalem that wouldn't go away. And Nehemiah began to pray. And he didn't just pray when he found time, he made time by fasting. And he didn't just pray that God would do something, he prayed that God would do something through him. And he didn't just pray for two or three days, he prayed for four months. And when the answer came, Nehemiah wasn't caught off guard. Nehemiah wasn't surprised. Nehemiah was scared but Nehemiah was ready. And in chapter 2 and verse 4, when the king said to Nehemiah, what's your request? Nehemiah said, I want you to send me to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And to do that, I'll need a leave of absence of 12 years. I'll need letters giving me authority to go through the provinces. And I'll need resources to do the job. And as we saw last week, the king gave him all that and more appointing him governor of Judah and sending him with an army escort. And so things have gone great for Nehemiah. He's got the time, he's got the authority, he's got the resources, but Nehemiah is still facing the biggest challenge of all. You see, Nehemiah alone cannot rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah alone cannot accomplish the, God, the job that God has laid on his heart. It will have to involve the people in the city of Jerusalem. The vision that he has for the city of God will have to be transmitted to others. And so after arriving in Jerusalem and after inspecting the walls, we find in chapter 2 and verse 17 that Nehemiah addressed the people. Now, Nehemiah was not a prophet. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a cupbearer. He was not used to standing up in front of groups of people, but that's what he did on this occasion. And he simply said, the situation is bad, but God has led me here. And let me tell you how God has worked in my life. And let me tell you how God's hand has been upon me. And let me tell you how God moved the king of Persia to send me here. And then he gives the appeal, now come and join me and let's rebuild the wall. And I'll bet it was music to Nehemiah's ears when the people responded in verse 18 and said, let us arise and build. And then as we said last week, when God begins to move, Satan begins to resist. When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem in chapter 2 and verse 10, the opposition began to surface. And now when the people begin to put their hands to the good work, the opposition gets visible and vocal and hostile. Notice verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? 
Are you rebelling against the king? Now that's always the way it is. If you're not doing anything for God, Satan will leave you alone. He will let a sleeping dog lie. But when you begin to move out for God, you're going to attract some adversaries. That's the way you can tell that you're on the front lines of the spiritual battle. You should be able to see the enemies. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem come on the scene, and they try two angles with the people. Number one, they criticized. It says they mocked and they despised and they said, what is this thing that you're doing? They threw negative stuff at them. Now, whenever you begin a project for God, you can count on the fact that this is going to happen. You're going to hear these voices. People are going to come on the scene quoting Murphy's Law. It can't be done. There's no way. And so they start out criticizing, and then on top of that criticism, they threaten. Are you rebelling against the king? Now, in Ezra chapter 4, we have a record of the fact that many years earlier, the people of Jerusalem set out to build the wall. And before they could really get started, people around the area complained to the king of Persia that if they ever built that wall, they were going to rebel and stop paying taxes and stop submitting to the king of Persia. And so he pulled their building permit. He, he wrote an edict saying, no wall. And so at this point, they're obviously referring back to that occasion, and they're saying, Nehemiah is really leading you in rebellion. He is taking you in opposition to the king of Persia. And so against these critics, Nehemiah steps forward in verse 20, and he says, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. I love that. Was Nehemiah affected by the negative comments? No. You see, that's what chapter 2, verses 12 to 16 was all about. Nehemiah had already gone out and inspected the walls. He had already seen the damage. He knew how bad it was. So their criticism saying he couldn't do it wasn't affecting Nehemiah because he knew it was bad. But you see, Nehemiah was not only looking at the problem, and Nehemiah was not only looking at his potential to solve the problem, Nehemiah was looking at God. And he said, the God of heaven will give us success. And then was Nehemiah intimidated by their threatening remarks? No. You know what's impressive to me? Nehemiah had in his pocket some letters from the king authorizing this job. He could have pulled them out. I would have expected him to do so. Pull them out and read that, pal. King Artaxerxes, personal friend of mine. We drink out of the same cup. But see, Nehemiah doesn't appeal to the highest authority on earth. Nehemiah appeals to the highest authority of all. And he says, the God of heaven will give us success. Despite what you say, we are his servants, and we are going to arise and build, and God will give us success. And then if you notice the end of verse 20, he says, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Now, he's not simply saying this to them because they're against the project. He's not simply saying either you get with us or you get out. Either you work or you leave. That's not really what he's saying because there's more involved than that. If you go back to verse 19, we're told that Sanballat is a Horonite. 
That means he's from the city of Horan. Now, there was a Beth Horan in Samaria, so he may have been a Samaritan. There was also a city called Horanaim in Moab, which most people think he was from, which would make him a Moabite. Tobiah is an Ammonite. So they are descendants of Moab and Ammon. Remember who those guys are? Genesis chapter 19 tells us that Moab and Ammon were the two sons of Lot, Lot born out of incest with his daughters. And Deuteronomy 23.3 tells us they were under a curse from God, that no Ammonite or Moabite could ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Geshem is an Arab, which makes him either a descendant of Esau or Ishmael. In either case, he is outside of the covenant people. And so these individuals picture to us those who are spiritually illegitimate children. They are false professors. They're in among the people of Israel sort of acting like they belong and they don't really belong. And you see, the reason that they were happy with the wall being down, because when, when the wall was down, there was no real barrier between the true and the false. But they knew that when the wall went up, they were going to be outside. And that's exactly what happened in Nehemiah chapter 13. And that's exactly what Nehemiah declares here in verse 20. You have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Now that brings us to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is one of those chapters that's filled with Jewish names that are hard to pronounce. Eliashib, Zaker, Hassanah, Merimoth, Hakaz, Meshulam, Berechiah, Meshizabel, difficult names. This is the kind of passage when you're doing your Bible reading, you come to this and you kind of skim over it and you go on to chapter 4. But you see, if we do that, we make a big mistake because we miss some very important lessons. You see, while Nehemiah was making his five-month trip to Jerusalem, and while Nehemiah was picking out the timbers in the king's forest, and while Nehemiah was spending that first three days in his room, Nehemiah was devising a plan of action. And chapter 3 reveals the details of that plan. Now this morning, we're not going to go through it verse by verse as we customarily would. What I would like us to do this morning is highlight three principles that we can derive from the chapter as a whole. Three principles that are essential to any work of God. And those three principles are cooperation, coordination, and commendation. First of all, cooperation. Now, there are a wide variety of people mentioned in chapter 3. From every social strata, from every career field, from every neighborhood, they all came together and they cooperated together to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Now let's take a look at some of these people. Look at verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers the priests and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. We're introduced here to the high priest and the priests. There were more priests who work. If you slide down to verse 17, it says, After him the Levites carried out repairs. Verse 22, After him the priests, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. Verse 28, Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his own house. The priests were involved 
in building the wall. Now, I'm sure they could have made excuses. We got jobs in the temple. We're busy. We, we can't be out here building the wall. And after all, oh, we got these robes. They're, these are not construction robes. They could have had excuses. But when the wall started, they were out there building. In fact, they're mentioned first, which tells us that they took the lead. The spiritual leaders took the lead, and they led by example. And not only that, but what I like in verse 1 is it says they consecrated it. That means they dedicated it. They set it apart for the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean in a formal way because the formal dedication is introduced to us in chapter 12. But as they were building the wall, they were constantly saying, Lord, this is for you. You see, they were helping themselves and others keep a divine perspective. And that was very important because they spent their day mixing mortar and laying brick and hanging gates, and that can become very mundane in a hurry. That can degenerate into just regular construction work. And so these priests were consecrating it. They were saying, remember, we're doing this for God. Remember who we're working for. Now let me suggest that that's very important in our Christian service because oftentimes the things we do for God can become very mundane and seem to be very incidental. A couple weeks ago, I found myself on a Wednesday night in the children's church room with about a dozen four- and five-year-olds climbing all over me. That didn't seem very spiritual. Okay? I, I was watching some of your kids so that you could have home Bible studies. But that is a ministry for the Lord. You see, we have to keep that in perspective because when we serve the Lord, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to volunteer our time to do some of the things we do because when we look at the whole picture of things, we say, well, I'm not even getting paid for that. Why would I do something like that? Well, the reason is because I'm doing it for the Lord. And when I keep that perspective, then it all makes sense to me. I've got to keep a divine perspective, and the priests help to do that. Then look at verse 2. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. Now, Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. And so these are the commuters. These are the people that don't live in the neighborhood. They didn't live with the problem. But when it came time to build, here they were. They were committed, they were commuting, and they were building. Then look at verse 8. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhahai, of the goldsmiths made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers made repairs, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now here you've got a goldsmith and a perfumer. You say, well, what are they doing on the wall? You know, you've got the dainty brothers here. They, they don't have any dirt under their fingernails. They don't have any calluses on their hands. And even though these guys are not used to this kind of strenuous work, they join the project. They cooperate. You see, I'm convinced that if we as a church are going to make a difference in this community, it's because people who don't think they have anything to offer find a way to serve. Look at verse 9. And next to them, ref, if I butcher these words, these names, you try it, okay? Rephai, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Now, this guy is the official of 
half the district of Jerusalem. In chapter 12, we find the, the other half. In chapter 14, we find another official. The officials were there. This is the upper class. These are people who probably pay others to do work for them. But when it came time to build the wall, they were there. You see, you couldn't pay these fellows enough to get them out there and do that work. But for God, they were doing it. Then look at verse 12. And next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters. Now, this was not, in that culture, the work for women. In fact, all through this chapter, we find men's names. But here we find that Shalom was out there and his daughters were there. And they're listed here. Which tells us that this man was doing something for the Lord and his family came along and joined in with him, which is very encouraging. And then look down at verse uh, 23. After them, Benjamin and Hashab carried out repairs in front of their house. Now notice this. you got Benjamin and Hashab carrying out repairs in front of their house, singular. These two fellows lived together, which tells me that these guys were bachelors. They were the frat brothers. They didn't have a family, but they were concerned, and so they went out and they built on the wall. And who knows, maybe they ran into Shalem's daughters, you know, as they were <laughs> building and changed the whole scene. There are a wide variety of people mentioned in chapter 3. Some lived near, some lived far, some were upper class, some were lower class, some were men, some were women, some were priests, some were rulers, some were farmers, some were merchants, but they all came together and they cooperated in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The first principle we see in chapter 3 is cooperation. You see, Nehemiah didn't bring in a bunch of imports to do the work. Nehemiah used all the people that were already there. All these people listed were already in and around Jerusalem. And so the solution was already there. Nehemiah did not bring in the solution. All he did was organize the solution. You see, he just hooked them up together. He just caused them to cooperate. They were already individual people doing their own individual agendas. And he brought them together and gave them a higher purpose and a higher goal. You see, there's power in that. Because they had a problem for 140 years and they solved it in 52 days because they cooperated. See, Satan understands that. What's Satan's goal? To keep us from hooking up. As long as Satan can keep husbands and wives from hooking up, as long as Satan can keep families from hooking up, as long as Satan can keep churches from hooking up, as long as he can keep people divided and fragmented and disunified, he will keep the walls broken down and the gates burned with fire. Maybe I told you about the story of the fellow who visited the insane asylum. He saw people scattered all over the field and one guard. So he's very curious. So he walked up to the one guard and he said, are you guarding all these people by yourself? And he said, yes. He said, well, aren't you afraid? He said, no. He said, well, aren't you worried that they're going to unite and attack you and overthrow you and escape? And he said, no. And he said, well, why not? He said, because insane people never unite. 
You see, sometimes I'm convinced that Christians have a propensity to insanity. We have a tendency to get out on our own and be alone and do our own agenda and try to accomplish something for God, and Satan is happy to keep us there because he realizes that if we would ever get together, if we would ever hook up, we could accomplish some great things for God. The first principle to an effective work for God is cooperation. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. A jigsaw puzzle is made up of many little pieces, and each one of those pieces has protrusions and intrusions. Each one of those pieces has strengths and weaknesses. But you open the box and it's chaos. But when those pieces hook up, there's a picture, and that's cooperation. Second principle is coordination. The beauty of Nehemiah is that he takes a huge problem and he cuts it down to size. It's kind of like the old joke, how do you eat an elephant in manageable bites? You see, Nehemiah took an overwhelming dilemma and he made it manageable. There were two and a half miles of broken down wall in Jerusalem. Archaeologists tell us it was eight feet wide. We don't know how tall it was, but it had to be tall enough to defend against armies that came against it. Some areas of the wall were partially standing, needing only repairs. Other parts of the wall were completely wiped out, like the section mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 12 or 14, where Nehemiah can't even ride through the debris. But see, Nehemiah didn't approach the problem as a whole. Nehemiah broke it down into manageable parts. And in this chapter, you will see mentioned 41 sections of the wall and 10 gates. Now, overall, there were 12 gates, so that tells us that apparently two of the gates were not damaged at all. But Nehemiah breaks it down into segments. You see, for 140 years, the people had been saying, it's too big. So Nehemiah comes along and says, well, how about if you just build this section? Okay. How about if you just build this section? All right. See, he broke it down so it made sense. Some of you are here this morning, you're saying, our marriage is too bad. Our kids are too bad. Our problem is too big. Well, that's because you're looking at the whole elephant. So you need to start with a toenail. You say, the vision of this church is too big. Well, not if everybody gets on the wall. You see, it can be done if we break it down into segments. The genius of Nehemiah is he took a big problem and he put it into bite-sized chunks. And the evidence of that coordination runs throughout chapter 3. Look at verse 1 again. One of the things he did was he put people in their area of interest. Verse 1 says, Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers the priests and built the sheep gate. Now what's the sheep gate? Well, the Sheep Gate is a place where they brought sheep into the city of Jerusalem. It was right near the pool of Bethesda where they would then wash the sheep. Then they would take the sheep to the temple to be sacrificed. Why would the priests be interested in building the Sheep Gate? Because the priests did the sacrifice. So you see, Nehemiah put them in an area of interest. They built the Sheep Gate because that was of great interest to them. We're not told a great deal about the other people who built the gates, but we can assume that the same principle followed. 
And that's an important principle for the church today because as we talked about a few weeks ago, we each have spiritual gifts. We are unique in our ministry and we need to find the place where God has gifted us and burdened us and get busy in that area. Look at verse 3. It says, the son of, sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. Now, we're not told anything about the sons of Hassanah. I assume they were fishermen. They built the fish gate. What was the fish gate? That was the place where they brought fish into the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's a great spiritual lesson here. Where did they get the fish from? They went down to the Jordan River. Now, think about it. They went down to the Jordan River and they caught fish out of the Jordan River that were going down the Jordan River to where? The Dead Sea. What was going to happen to those fish when they got to the Dead Sea? They were going to hit salt water and be dead. So they went down to the Jordan River, they caught fish that were destined for doom in the Dead Sea and they brought them into the city of God. Is that a good picture? That's what we're called to do spiritually. We go down to the... Jordan River and we catch people who are destined for the Dead Sea and we bring them into the city of God at the fish gate. See, we've all got individual gifts that we're called to. We need to figure out what our gift is and plug into the area where God has called us to minister. Then notice something else here. Look at verse 2. See the little phrase, next to him? Then in verse 4, next to them. Again in verse 4, next to him. Verse 5, next to him. Verse 7, next to them. Verse 8, next to him. Next to him. Verse 9, next to them. Verse 10, next to them. Verse 10, next to him. Verse 12, next to him. What's going on here? Nehemiah's plugging all the gaps. He puts somebody in, and then next to him, he puts somebody else in, and next to him, he puts somebody else in. You see, he's making sure that where one person stops, another person starts. And if you read verse 1, he starts at the sheep gate, which is up on the north part of the wall. And then he goes west from there, and then he goes south, and then he goes east, and then he goes north, and he ends up in verse 32, back at the sheep gate. He starts out at the sheep gate, he lines people up next to, next to, next to, and he ends up at the sheep gate but he, because he wants to be sure to fill every gap in the wall. If you sit here this morning, you say, well, I can't offer very much to the Lord, so what I do doesn't really matter. Well, yes, it does. Because you are filling a gap in the wall. You see, if one person neglected their job, you'd have a wall with a breezeway. And that doesn't work. All of us are important. Then notice verse 10. Next to him, Jediah, the son of Haruma, made repairs opposite his house. Verse 23. After him, Benjamin and Hashub carried out repairs in front of their house. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest carried out repairs, each in front of his house. Now, why would Nehemiah place people next to their house? Well, when you think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Because it saves time. He doesn't have far to go to work. So he spends more time working than he does traveling. It also makes sense because it ensures quality. If a man is building the wall right by his house, he's going to make sure that it looks pretty good. And he's going to make sure that it works pretty good because it's protecting his house and his wife and his family. 
You see, you put somebody else next to somebody else's house, and they're going to say, well, I hope that holds, you know. But not your house. You're going to make sure it holds. And then it also initiates involvement because if it's in front of his house, then his whole family can get involved. They can, they can come out and work for a little while. They can bring lunch. It can be a family endeavor. And, of course, that's a New Testament principle, isn't it? We start at home. Where do we begin? We always begin at home. That's even true of evangelism. Where does evangelism start? It starts in Jerusalem. It starts at home. When Legion in Mark chapter 5 said to the Lord Jesus, I want to follow you, he said, you go home and tell them what wonderful things the Lord has done for you. It always starts at home, and that's what we find here. Then notice verse 17. Another example of this coordination. Verse 17 says, After him the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. When there was a group on the wall, there was a leader for that group. Nehemiah delegated authority to a leader, so that leader answered back to him. So again, we see the coordination of the whole project. And then look at verse 21. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. Now, if you look back in verse 4, you'll find that Merimoth already built a section. Now... He's building another section in verse 21, and he's building the section in front of Eliashib's house. You say, well, why didn't Eliashib build his own section in front of his house? Well, if you remember, Eliashib is the high priest back in verse 1. Eliashib is building the sheep gate. So this whole thing's coordinated. He's busy on the sheep gate, so Nehemiah has another fellow plugged in doing the work around his house. Coordination. And then one other example of that. Look at verse 14. And Malchihah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hacherim, repaired the refuse gate. Some of your Bibles say the dung gate. It's a little more descriptive. This was the gate where they carried out all the trash. The least popular spot on the wall. Probably when they asked for volunteers, nobody volunteered to build the dung gate but it had to be done. What's interesting to me is Malchahah finally said, I'll do it. And who was Malchahah? He was one of the officials. He was one of the upper class. And he humbled himself and said, I'll go build that. But you see, it also indicates to us the coordination of Nehemiah because every part of the wall had to be covered. Which brings us to the third principle and the final principle we see in this chapter, and that is commendation. Why does Nehemiah list all these individuals and all these groups? And why in verse 4 does he, does he tell us about Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz? He tells us his name, his father's name, and his grandfather's name. I mean, he gets real specific. And why, for instance, in verse 30, does he tell us about Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph? Again, very specific. This is the sixth son of Zalaph. Why does he do that? Because Nehemiah noticed. And Nehemiah wanted to commend those who did the work. See, another question you might ask on this chapter is, why in a book like this that God knew would go all over the world, did he give us a whole chapter full of names of people 
we don't even recognize and we don't even know anything about. Why didn't God edit this out and give us some more action in this chapter? Well, I think the simple answer is because he wanted us to realize the importance that he places on all work that is done for him. Here are people who did work on the wall 2,500 years ago, and their work is still recorded in the Word of God. You see, God is trying to remind us that he never forgets. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. God does not forget. And Nehemiah understood that from a leader's perspective, and so he commended his workers. Someone has said that encouragement is like peanut butter. The more you spread it around, the better things stick together. And Nehemiah understood that. Nehemiah knew their names, and he knew their father's names, and he knew their grandfather's names. And he saw their work, and he recognized their work, and he commended their work. Look at verse 13. It says, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. These guys built a thousand cubits of the... 1,500 feet of wall they built. But you see, Nehemiah noticed, and he wrote it down. Look at verse 20. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebiah, zealously repaired another section. Now notice, he'd been saying people repaired and they repaired and repaired, but when he gets to this fellow Baruch, he said he zealously repaired. Nehemiah noticed the way this guy built, and he wrote it down. Look at verse 5. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs. And then if you turn over to verse 27, it says, After him, the Tekoites repaired another section. They did so good on the first one, they, they, they did a second section. But I'd like you to notice something else, and that's also in verse 5. It says, Moreover, next to him the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Or that last word in that verse could read, Lord, singular which is the way I prefer to take it. Literally, this reads, their nobles did not put their neck on the line for their Lord. See, Nehemiah didn't get 100% cooperation. Some people sat on the sideline. And so he had to adjust his coordination, and I think that explains to us why in verse 5 the Tekoites had to build two sections because they were covering up for their lazy nobles who didn't do any work. But what I really want you to see here is that alongside the record of those who did much, there's also the record of those who did nothing. And let me ask you this in closing this morning. What appears by your name in God's record book? It has nothing to do with salvation. That's a gift. But God records, God notices... God doesn't forget your faithful works for Him. Does He have by your name that you're a zealous worker? That you accomplished much? That you did one section and you went off and you did another section? Or does He have behind, beside your name that you wouldn't put your neck to the work for your Lord? 
There's a clever young man named somebody else. There's nothing this guy can't do. He is busy from morning till way late at night just substituting for you. You're asked to do this, you're asked to do that, and what is your ready reply? Get somebody else to do that job. He'll do it much better than I. So much to do in this weary old world, so much and workers so few. And somebody else, all weary and worn, is still substituting for you. The next time you're asked to do something worthwhile, just give this ready reply. If somebody else can give time and support, then by all means, so can I. Don't leave it to somebody else. Even if you're a man from Jericho, even if you're a perfumer, even if you're a cupbearer, make your presence felt. Be listed among those who built the wall and made a difference in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of Scripture that reminds us about the principles of effective work for you. We think about cooperation. And Lord, we pray that we might truly be unified. We think about coordination and we would pray for those who direct our steps. And then we would think about commendation. And Lord, I pray that as a result of our working together, that we might hear from you, well done, you good and faithful servants. That's our desire. Lord, I pray that you would direct our steps toward that goal. In Jesus' name.